Dear Lord, we come to you this morning with great gratitude for your existence, for our creation, for so much that we that you've, I don't know, accomplished. What are the words? And uh, we just thank you for this opportunity to be here and learn your word, hopefully internalize it, and uh, be guided, Lord, by your wisdom. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, so, I cheated this morning on my song. I, uh, I asked John and Sharon to, what their favorite song was. And it was really interesting because they immediately opened their Bibles. <laughs> negotiating back and forth. And then I was accused of creating dissension in the family. And, uh, trying to come up with... You troublemaker, you. <laughs> I, know. I stir the pot from time to time. Uh, but it's interesting because they said Psalm 139. So I'll ask y'all the same question, but you don't have to answer it right now. I put them on the spot. Uh, this morning we're going to start out with Psalm 139. But I'd ask you, what is your favorite song? Psalm 23. That's quick. That's been my life. My life. Uh... Yeah. And, and why do you hang on to your favorite song? What is it telling you about the, the person and character of God that, uh, that makes it your favorite? Let's go ahead and start with reading Psalm 139. Who'd like to read Psalm 139 for us this morning? He's got it. <laughs> you can if you want, or you can have Translation. Okay. Yep. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before, and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day, and the, and the darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you have formed my inward parts, you have covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. O oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. 
Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. <clears throat> Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Can I ask a question? You can. One thing the Bible teaches is love. Yeah. Love regardless, in spite of. The word that is translated into hate here, is that what it precisely means in the original language? Uh, so, how do you how do you define hate? Well, if I if, when I picture somebody hating someone, I mean they'd like to take them over the throat and you know just you know that's that's <laughs> throttle. Yeah, yeah. That that's hating someone. That could be frustration. Well, I know I, I had that towards my kids at various times. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I didn't hate them. A, this is a good question. Uh, I, I kind of wonder if that doesn't create some kind of a bit of a misunderstanding in ways as love versus hate right. uh, in a biblical concept. Yep. Well, we're actually going to see um, the word hate in our um, passage this morning. We're going to look at Second Samuel uh, chapters uh, 13 and 14. And what we're going to see is that there was a hatred between two members of David's family, of his children. And uh, it caused quite a, quite a problem. In fact, it, it ends up leading to murder. Well, a considerable amount of lust and uh, some other things there, yep. too. So there were some real problems we're going to take a look at this morning. And that word hatred is actually used in that passage. So it's very appropriate that you would ask, um, what... What is this talking about when he says, I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. So I would ask the opposite question as well. What is love? What is love? Love is many things. Depends on what phase of it you're talking about. Uh -huh. So we understand there's a kind of uh, a, a description of love today which I call Hollywood love. Right? And so when you put in the DVD, um, and, and there are a variety of different kind of genre of film, so in a, uh, a love story is one kind of chick flick, the kind that guys would never watch, you know, something's not blowing up, it's not a guy flick, but if, you know, you got two people that in the end, it, it all ends happily ever after in a marriage, and then that's a chick flick, right? And so Hollywood gives us a, a definition of what love is. And what I would say is that's about as far from love as you can get. Right? Uh, well, maybe not as far as you can get. What you see is you see a certain affection, you see a certain chemistry thing represented, but you don't see love. Um, what is love? Well, love is an the love that the Bible normally talks about is an action, an attitude toward something or someone. I mean, the way you react so to, about them, to do something for someone, no matter how you feel about the individual, is an act right. of love. So love is apart from feeling. Can uh, be it's an totally. outward action towards another, so it's outward focus, not inward focus. Love can very much be a, an outpouring of conviction 
as well as an outpouring of conviction. You you think this is right, the right thing to do. I mean, you just believe that that's what should be done, and so that's what you do, and it becomes an act of love toward whoever it's directed. You, you indicated another thing. It's based in belief. Mm -hmm. Worldview. Worldview world makes view. a tremendous difference. Yeah. Well, the Greek word uh, that represents the kind of love we're talking about is agape, and it means to seek the welfare of the other without any regard to what I get out of it. Right. And that's why we're told in First John not to love agape, the world. Right. We're not supposed to seek the welfare of the world. Right. We're supposed to seek the welfare of God. And Psalm uh, 97, um, verse 10, he says, You who love the Lord hate evil. So when evil is part of the equation, as far as God is concerned, we are supposed to hate evil, and that's why David hates the enemies of the Lord. That's exactly right. <clears throat> I always, as I'm reading through Psalm 139, it's extolling uh, the glories of God uh, and David's relationship with them, and then he gets to this part, which is, uh, is imprecatory in the sense that he's calling out a curse on God's enemies. And that always, like, why did David have to stick that in there? That really bothers me, you know. It was such a happy song. And then he throws in these couple of verses about hating God's enemies. And But you're absolutely correct in that um, if, if love, and it says in the Bible that God is love, right? So we get that in 1 John. And what that means is it's not that um, God necessarily in our interpretation or Hollywood's interpretation acts lovingly but it's an actual essential part of who he is it's his being he is an expression of love and so when I think about the uh, the things that have gone wrong in God's creation from Genesis chapter 3 forward what you see is you see an expression of God's love for his people even in the face of total rejection right when you read through the prophets, the, uh, the heart of the people is described as being a prostitute or being a harlot, that they left their husband for another. And, you know, really strong words about what it looks like when people turn their back on God, when they reject God. And yet God continually loves them. So it's not an affection necessarily because uh, although God is certainly affectionate but there's um, a tenacity a kind of uh, deliberate intention to choose the welfare of another even when they wouldn't choose it themselves I, I, I don't want to say this he um, ticked and I lost my train of thought um, I do that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he loves the people, but wrong actions, <laughs> negative actions, improper actions, obviously have to have a negative result, or they would continue. Right. And, of course, or they would his continue. people totally reject him, and he has to, he forces, they force him to do something to... But he always, always manages to save a remnant and rebuild it. He right. wants them there. He right. looks forward to a better day. But 
they, they have to suffer these things because they just simply will not listen or comply. Right, and that, that seems to be the human condition. Yeah. We're looking at Daniel in our Friday night mm-hmm. study and you know how did they get there, what's going on, all of those issues. And what you find is that God, even though the people had completely rejected him and had turned to every kind of evil, everything that is against God, they had chosen the world over him. Uh, God does not give up on them. He does not abandon them. He allows the consequence of their actions to be manifest so that they can see how much he loves them and saying, don't go there. Right? So he wants his love to be known. And sometimes that gets expressed uh, very harshly. But it's always motivated by love. In fact, if and I recently got into a conversation about this with a young man, and I, uh, at the end of the conversation, I said, now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and read that with a different set of eyes. Because it's all about God's love. It's foundational. And when we look at uh, John 3.16, one of the most known verses in the world from the New Testament, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that all who believe in him will have eternal life, right? There's, there's a love that transcends all of creation, right? And that's foundational to everything that we're seeing. So one of the things that we want to look at as we go through the Bible is we want to look at how is the character of God expressed and how is love portrayed? Because I think love is foundational. It's God's essence, right? It's essential. It's who he is. So we should be seeing love portrayed in in God as he presents himself and his purpose throughout all of history. And that's the story we have. We have a large story here. And the first question was, what about hate? Well, if love is choosing the welfare of another, even to the detriment of yourself, might cost you your very life. If, you're, if your love is that great, then what hate would be would be to not choose someone. <coughs> that simple? To allow them to remain um, in their own choice. So when it says, and this always bothered me because I, I read uh, in uh, Malachi where it says, uh, God <coughs> loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. It's like, what did Esau do to God that God would hate him, right? Well, another way of framing that would be to say God chose Jacob, but he didn't choose Esau. He rejected him because of Esau's attitude. And we can try and turn it onto Esau and his behavior, but Jacob's behavior was equally as reprehensible. Oh, well. So it isn't that Jacob brought any merit And that's something that's really important to understand because we all want to think, especially when we become Christians, that we bring some merit to God. Hey, I chose you. You should choose me. Right? And actually we see that same kind of thing in Hollywood love. But it's not about that. God chose us even though we didn't choose him. And he pursued us when we were yucky, scummy folk. Right? And it's that love that actually changes us. The greatest power in the world is love. Um, Napoleon, one of the great generals of all time, 
recognized that as great a general as he was and as much power as he had in military command and strategy, he could not win men's hearts. People would not die for him. He could order them up to the front line, but they wouldn't voluntarily go to the front line and lay down their life because they loved Napoleon. He said, Jesus did that. You know, at that point in history, it was 1,500 years before him, 1,600 years before him, and it took over the whole world. And so when we're looking at Daniel, for example, and you get to Daniel chapter 2, and, and I characterize Daniel as the war of the worlds, right? you got the, the, the world, the kingdoms of men, and the kingdom of God uh, held up before you, and... There's a, a contrast there and a choice there consistently portrayed. And the, it starts off with, this is what the kingdoms of the world look like. you got a head of gold and a, a breast of silver and a, a place of strength of bronze and legs of iron, right? And he gives all of this description of the kingdoms of man. And it was a stone, not a huge boulder that was cut out of a rock without hands, that just struck it. It doesn't say that it crushed it. It says that it struck it, and that statue, all those kingdoms of men, came down. And they came down so hard because there was no strength in them that it, they completely turned into dust, and the wind came along and blew them away. But that stone, that little stone, grew so large that it filled the whole world. That's the dream that is portrayed, that portrays these two kingdoms, right? So when I say love is the most powerful thing, that God chose us, and that he chose us before he even created anything. He knew that we were going to be here, which is why the 139th Psalm is so powerful. <laughs> he says, I knew you before you were born. You know? If you think you've got boogers in your beard now, I knew you before you were born. <laughs> There's just one other aspect to that that <laughs> makes me believe that it, it's his purpose that all this should go on because the Bible very plainly states that at some point in the future he will write his law in our hearts we won't be able to believe everything else if he can do it then he could have done it to begin with right. and he hasn't done it for a reason right. and we may not know exactly what that reason is right. but it's, it will probably be very obvious and very practical at some time Right. And we don't, and I would say that I used the word rock which was from Stranger in a strange land. We don't rock it yet. We don't get it. Um, but someday we will when we stand face to face. And what happens is, is that through submission, we actually come into God's presence. That's how we enter into his presence. It's not that he's ever absent from us. You know, so a lot of times we'll pray, Lord, be in this room. Hey, guess what? Lord's in this room. Um, what I pray is that, Lord, change my heart so that I have the eyes to see you in this room. Let me draw near to you. And that's what uh, that love does. It changes our hearts so that we choose him. We love him because he first loved us. And that we enter into his presence through submission. And that that's what the process of salvation is. And what I wanted to do, and I'm going to give you guys a preview. Um, when we get through 2 Samuel, we will. Um, and it, We're it can actually happen very quickly. You're going to be surprised. It's like, oh, we just studied Samuel. I didn't know that. I'm going to take a week or two, and we're going to draw up all of these foundational pieces of theology that we've just seen portrayed. 
Samuel. I'm going to start with the gospel because one of the questions that I always ask people is, what's the gospel? And people have all sorts of ideas what the gospel is. Do you know what the gospel is and where it's found? Do you know what the Bible says about love and about the character of God in relationship to love? Do you understand why when he uses the word hate, why he puts that in there? Because if you truly love God, you would hate the world. You would not choose it. You would not choose all of the evil things that you could possibly do. You would not choose those things. And that's hate. You would put it as far from you as you possibly could. So in that sense, we understand hate as a negative emotion. To place it as far from us as we possibly can. Well, guess what? We placed ourselves as far from God as we possibly could. And he didn't hate us. He chose to draw near and chose to enter in. And that's a very significant thing. And what we're going to look at this morning, and now let's take a look at, at uh, 2 Samuel. Thank you for your question, because I think it's foundational. Um, we were looking at chapter 11 and 12, and the story of chapter 11 and 12 uh, is the story of David's, when he's at the peak of his service to God as king, he enters into uh, incredible sin. He uh, commits adultery, and then he commits murder to cover it up. And he takes another man's wife. So, I have my, my cheat sheet of questions here, and I always ask the question, what was David's sin? And I asked that last week, and on the surface it would be, well, he committed adultery and he committed murder. Pretty simple to me. Pardon? Abuse of power. Abuse of power that what happens is is that God delegates um, part of his authority to us. And with that delegation comes power to choose the good and reject the evil. And what David did is he misused his power. So he didn't choose the good, rather he chose the evil. So that was what David's sin was. Um, why was what he did considered sinful? Because in that culture, at that point in time, to take somebody else's wife was not necessarily a bad thing. It just showed that you were alpha dog. Alpha dog, that means you're the, the, uh, the ruler of the pack. <laughs> I may be misusing the word. That's right. According to the moral system, what David was doing was exactly what a king should have done. You secure your stronghold, you get lots of wives, you accumulate wealth, you build big armies. Um, all those things that God said, this is what human kings will do. Right? So, you got to remember, in what David did, he could have easily gotten away with. A lot of things that are presented to us, to us you know, we have this choice, God has delegated to us a similar type authority to choose the good and reject the evil. Everybody in here. Right? And when we choose the evil rather than the good, when we choose the world rather than God, we're doing the same thing. And we're following a moral system that is not God's. And that's really important to understand because this is foundational. You want to know what the will of God is? It's to do good. It's to love because that's who God is. He is the definition of good. We call it righteous. And that if you're outside of righteousness, you want to restore it to right. That's called justice. So we understand God is righteous and just. 
that he is loving, that we see that in his compassionate, merciful character, his long-suffering, his desire to redeem that which is lost and to chase it to the end of the world. So we understand there's two kinds of worlds going on here. Um, so I'd ask, what is the moral law? Because everybody, this is, you know, on the headlines today. What is the moral law? Can anybody tell me what the moral law is? Well, it starts with the Ten Commandments. Okay. What's the Ten Commandments about? Are they prescriptive or descriptive? So prescriptive would mean that if you can follow these set of rules, uh, you've accomplished morality. Descriptive would be, this is what morality looks like. I, I would say the Ten Commandments are that goal that we're constantly focused on to conform our lives to. And we may or may not make it completely, but if that is our goal, we're going to be a lot closer to it than we would if we didn't pay any attention. So um, that can be both prescriptive and descriptive. Maybe to some degree. Bob? New Testament tells us that the law, you know, without the law, we wouldn't understand. <coughs> Without the law, we wouldn't know sin. It is the, the schoolmaster that leads us to our need for salvation. <clears throat> so in that sense, it's descriptive yeah. of uh, the character and requirement of God. So uh, if you followed the law all your life, prescriptively, you still wouldn't have the righteousness of God. It describes the righteousness of God, but it doesn't prescribe how you get there. We know that because in the New Testament, there was a man who came to Jesus and said, What must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, Well, love God, love your neighbor. And he gave him the description of what it looks like to be righteous. And the man said, I've done all those things. And, he, and Jesus said, Good. Now, go sell everything that you have and follow me. In other words, it required something more. It required a, a commitment, which we understand is love, right? It required uh, a submission that man was willing to take everything that was of value to him and place it under the authority of, of another, in this case, the king, the true king. That's what Jesus asked. So, in that sense, the moral <coughs> law being described can't save you. It can only show us our need for salvation. Right? And what I would say, though, is that the moral law, even though I, it can't save us, it is absolutely inescapable. So the way I describe this is I say it's stronger than gravity. So I don't know any of you guys if you have a red cape and a vest and everything goes on your chest. But if you were Superman, you could escape gravity. Right? I've never met anybody that could escape gravity. No matter what you do, gravity rules. <laughs> the first time I saw that was when I jumped out of an airplane and, uh, and I had a uh, parachute on so I could you know, fly. And, uh, and when the canopy uh, inflated and I knew that there was a chance that I would survive this experience, I was like on But I realized gravity rule. <clears throat> Unless I had some assistance, it was going to have a bad end. And I got to the bottom of the, you know, got to the ground in one of the cars that would shuttle us back to the airport. 
had a bumper sticker, Gravity Rules. That's true. That is so true. I cannot escape it. It's going to happen. Bob knows he's going to So, um, that is how strong the moral law is. It's like gravity. It's stronger than gravity. You can't escape it. You can't redefine it. You can't say, oh, I'm sorry, God, you got it wrong. It's really something else. And that's what God tells us. He says, no, there's only one way. Right? And it's my way. I'm sorry about that, but that's what it is. I created it. I uphold it. That's the law. So what does chapter 11 and 12 tell us about the person and character of God? Because if the Bible is trying to tell us about the person and character of God, what does our moral failure tell us about the person and character of God? Because 11 and 12 is about moral failure. It's about David misusing his power, choosing evil and trying to, to proclaim that as good. What does it tell us about who God is? We think this is a story all about David, but it's not. Right? This is a story about who God is, what he requires, and how we respond to his revelation. And in this case, David responded with failure. But he learned from that. David was teachable. So when we read Psalm 51, we read of what David learned. And what he learned is that God still loved him, was not going to withhold from him the spirit of life. But rather, he was safe in God's hand because he had chosen God. And he knew that God had chosen him. So David was safe. So now I get you to the real real uh, crux of the issue is. One of the questions when we went through uh, chapter 12, you know the story of chapter 12. In chapter 11, David takes Bathsheba and murders uh, Uriah, uh, her husband, and his friend. <coughs> and uh, then we get to chapter 12, and Nathan, Dave, so David got away with it. Right? We get to chapter 12, and Nathan, the prophet, comes and tells David a story. Let me tell you a story. David loves stories. Right? And Nathan tells him this story about a rich man and a, a poor man and about a sheep and how the rich man took the poor man's sheep and used it because he didn't want to um, you know, use one of his own sheep uh, in, a, in, in a meal. So he used somebody else's sheep. And when David heard this story, it really ticked him off. You ever seen a movie that really ticks you off? <laughs> when my wife gets ticked off, she does this shit. <laughs> it's, it's great, because I always know what's going on inside. She has a physical reaction like, you know, off. Right? I demand justice. I mean, I'll make it right. You know? well, that's what David did. And then Nathan said, guess what? You're the guy. And David was pierced to the heart because he knew in an instant all of these things about the character of God, God's moral law, what the requirement was, what God had called him to do, and in an instant that came right down on top of him. And he said, wow, I sinned. Yes, sir? It just added that from verse 5 in chapter 12. It says, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to David, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Yes. 
okay, and then Nathan says, well, it's you. <coughs> That's right. And then it's like, oh, well, actually, I, I deserve to die then. You know, so he, he pronounced yes. judgment really on himself. He did. And Nathan and God knew that he would do that. That David was a man after God's heart, which didn't mean that he was perfect, clearly. <laughs> but that when God confronted him, David would at least give an ear. He would hear. That's a really hard thing to do, by the way. So, is David a positive example of the story? Yes, he is. Because he heard. Could he offer anything to God to undo what he did? No. Repentance. That's the only thing that he could bring, was a broken and contrite heart. And that's what he says in Psalm 51. Yes, sir. In the next verse, he says, and it should make restitution fourfold. Mm -hmm. Is there anything to that? Yeah, actually there is. So, um, one of the things David did was he redeemed uh, the, uh, the blessing of Uriah. So Uriah, having come into the tribes of Israel, he was a Gentile from the outside, and, through, and, and we could do some history on Uriah, but uh, he was a Hittite, but became one of David's mighty men. So he, through his own choice, chose... Uh, God and chose to serve God's king that, that he had placed, which was David. So he was one of David's mighty men. That meant that he had an inheritance. How was that inheritance maintained or brought forward to future generations? Through marriage. So we understand a concept that today would be terrible to us, but uh, they called it levered marriage. And we understand that Ruth, the Moabites, was brought into the family of God through elaborate marriage. And that happened to be David's uh, great-grandmother. Right? So, we, we see that David did make restitution, but it isn't obvious to us. It isn't, doesn't say, yeah, David gave, you know, 500 shekels to Uriah's family, because Uriah had no family. So he made sure Uriah had a family. Um, in that sense, Solomon who was the son of that uh, lever of marriage, should not have been king. Which is an interesting thing. And there was, when you get to uh, the end of the story and the intrigue that happens in David's family, there's uh, a grab for the throne when David's dying. And there was one in line that rightfully could be king. But David had made a promise to Bathsheba that her son would be king. And David honored his promise, even though Solomon was not the, the one in line for the throne. And this is an interesting thing. You find this throughout God's word. He tends to choose people that aren't um, the one that you would expect to be chosen. He chose Jacob rather than Esau. Right? He chose... We're going to go through a lot of the stories. Joseph over Judah. There's a lot of examples of where God, for whatever reason, chooses the least likely to bring forward his plan. Do you know what it chose? Pardon? Do you know what it chose instead then? Yes, that's given to us in uh, the account uh, in 1 Kings where it talks about that ascension to the throne, the whole, the whole thing that happened. And it was uh, another one of David's sons. And we can go through that a little bit later. But I guess the point is, is that 
God wants to make sure that we understand that it's not by our strength and not by our power that things come about in God's, in God's kingdom. By our power and our strength, we might take over a country. We might be the empire like Babylon that conquers uh, Israel. But did Babylon hold on to Israel? Did they really conquer Israel? I would say no. Because if you look at the hearts of Israel and the Jews, the Judites that went into captivity, their heart remained steadfast on God. It says at the very beginning of Daniel, Revelation about the end times and about what was going to happen in that captivity and recovery and redemption of the Jewish people, it starts out with saying, Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's delicacies, in other words, the world, or rather dedicated himself to the Lord. So what you see is that you can conquer the country, but you can't conquer the heart. Only God can conquer the heart. And that's what's going on here. Is that David, in all of his power, and all of his might, as a great world emperor, realized in an instant that he had nothing. And that everything was in God's hands. And not only that, but he had failed to do what God asked him to do. And then we, we read on down, and Nathan says, yep, and guess what? There's a natural consequence associated with that. But God is going to redeem you. You will not die. Even though you pronounce judgment of death, God's not going to require your life. But the child dies. That seems pretty unfair. If we were looking at there was an exchange, that would be a pretty unfair exchange. Right? I mean, the child that was born of this adulterous union um, ends up perishing kid didn't do anything wrong. So my question is, why did the baby die? Because <clears throat> God's purpose was going to be served through David and the people that were already there. And that child, mm -hmm. he may have died a physical death, but that doesn't mean he's gone. Well, and David acknowledged that. He acknowledged that even though the child perished in this physical reality, that God still had that child safely in his hand and that he would have the opportunity when he appeared in God's presence. He just took to, the, the to privilege that of that child's existence away from David and... Well, God could have preserved that child and still had Solomon on the throne. It wasn't required that that child die. But the child died. I don't know about you guys, but when I read stuff like this, it's like, man, that just puts God... What's going on here? That just doesn't seem like God. You know, is God going to require um, my son's life for something that I did? And yet we read in Ezekiel, clearly God doesn't do that. He doesn't require the life of the son for the father, for the sins of the father. No, but in other parts of the Bible it says he will... What's the word? See, inflict the, the consequences on the third and fourth, down to the third and fourth generation. Ah. So, well, I'm going to share with you two verses, and then I'll come I'll come back to you because I know you had a question at the end. Let's look at uh, Exodus. Where, where am I going, Mikey? Exodus 34. Yep. Exodus what? Exodus 34, 
verses 6 and 7. <clears throat> Again, this is one of those foundational verses to understanding who God is and what His plan is and how we can reconcile these things that just don't seem like the character of God. <clears throat> it says, Then the Lord passed in front of him, that is, the Lord passed in front of Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord God, excuse me, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. We read that and we think, that does mean that God's going to punish my kids for what I did wrong. That's the way we would interpret that on the surface. And when uh, I preached through this a while back, I pointed out that that's not what's intended because I go to uh, Ezekiel. Chapter 18. I read in chapter 18, verse 20 of Ezekiel, because what had happened was people were thinking that this is how it works, that somebody else is, is punished for your sin, which is true, but that um, it actually had some power uh, in forgiveness of sin in a way that they could affect. And God straightens them out. We get to verse 20. He says, The person who sins will die. Not much clearer than that. <laughs> the wages of sin is death for that person who sins. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Seems pretty clear to me that what God requires, he requires individually. That he's not giving a corporate uh, pardon for my sin in the sense that my children would bear the consequence of my sin. I bear the consequence of my sin. However, what we know is, is that sin is so insidious that it affects everything around us. Yes, sir? Is this like, like in Romans 5 where it talks about just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam... So, uh, righteousness will be attained to one man, Christ. The idea of generational, generational curse isn't necessarily about you sinning and then it coming on to me, being your son, but so much as uh, being born into sin or a cursed state. Right. What happens is, is that the, the curse on sin, and then it, it gets the whole lineage. Adam sinned, and then... All sinned as a result of that are participated in sin, both uh, from the curse upon humanity as a result of sin, and then personally <coughs> demonstrated through death. It says, and the evidence that all share in Adam's sin is that all die. That's what it says in Romans chapter 5, right? And so it's not saying that you can live perfectly sinless and get out. Uh, and not die because you're sinless. Rather, that this sin is so pervasive and it has such a broad impact that it affects everybody such that all will personally sin. 
and that the result of that is that personal sin results in death. I got a couple hands up here. Let me put you back. Well, and two, when I think, you know, when you say that idea of, you know, why would God take uh, David's son? And, you know, I mean, first of all, we know that, you know, David made a sinful choice. So he's got consequences to that. But as uh, any mothers or fathers in this room know, I mean, can you have a greater... Uh, punishment to bear than for the child to be taken. I mean, that, right. to me, I mean, if he would have taken David's life himself, David's life, he would have been with Jesus. I mean, that would right. have been a punishment. But a punishment for David taking his son, I mean, that's a terrible punishment. Yeah, but it wasn't about uh, so much punishing David for the sense of exacting uh, vengeance. Right, Even no, though God says vengeance is mine, that's no, not what he's. Correction, wouldn't it be in terms of correction? Correction, no. correction is what he's about. So there are times when, in the consequence of our action, um, we have the opportunity to be corrected. And I would take you to Romans chapter one, where it talks about the rejection of God, the heart that rejects Him and turns against Him. What happens is, is that God says, "I give you over." I take my hands off of you. And in that sense, sin follows its course to death. But it doesn't say that I reject you and cease loving you. And that's what's important, that, that when we think of punishment in, the, in a sense of correction, we're correct. God does uh, want to correct us, and sometimes that correction is very harsh. But it is correct in that uh, loss of a child, because David would have greatly valued his children, would have been a uh, very significant punishment. But God wouldn't require the life of that child for David's sin. But what I would say is, is that this is really an issue of design order. So when you hear Jesus ask a tough question in the New Testament, all, many, many, many times he'll either go directly to the word and say this is what the word says or he will um, give an answer from God's design. So for example, when he was questioned about the issue of the day um, was is it lawful um, for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? This is in chapter 18 of Matthew. And, uh, and Jesus said, well, Moses provided for in the law, because sure enough, that happens in the world, because of the hardness of men's hearts. But it wasn't this way from the beginning. In other words, he invokes an argument from design order. He says, God intended creation and relationship of the creation to him to operate in a particular way, according to God's economy. And what he did was good. He said, this is good. This is good. This is good. This is very good. Right? And so that means it had an, an, an intention, there was intention behind it, and it accomplished God's intention, and that that intention was violated. And so when the intended uh, design is violated, there's a consequence. And what I would say is that the death of David's child was because it was against God's design. <laughs> that God didn't design David and his family and that whole... Uh, thing that God was doing to set up the kingship 
of Israel, the, the leadership of Israel, through this delegated king, to have this child in the line. That wasn't God's design. That seems pretty hard. But when David, through levirate marriage, took Bathsheba as his wife, the child that resulted from that lived and became king because of promise, which is really significant. It's a child of promise. Even though David made the need for levirate marriage and redemption of Bathsheba necessary, he was operating according to God's design in redeeming life when he took Bathsheba and when Solomon was a result of that union. Whereas this child that came out of the adulterous affair was not. Now, does that always happen? I would say no. So any of you that have been born from an adulterous affair, and there are probably some in this room. Um, I don't want to disclose my family history. It's pretty yucky. Um, but I can say that there are people today that were born as a result of this kind of sin. And God didn't require their life. But he did here. And the reason why is because David was in a very significant position of influence in God's kingdom. He was representing Messiah to come. And sin can absolutely not be allowed. So that's why it says that those that uh, in the Bible that desire to be teachers, that's a good thing, but beware, you come under a harsher judgment. <clears throat> the reason why is because you're standing in a position of greater authority. God's delegating uh, a greater purpose in that instant, not that you as a person are any greater or different, but that God's purpose <coughs> is greater. There is a greater consequence. And David had a very significant role in history. In fact, we have uh, a whole book that's about David, right? And many of the Psalms are the Psalms of David. So this guy, we've got to pay attention to what's going on in his life. And God said, you know what? Design order is really important. The way I design things to work, I do it for a reason. And there's a consequence when you don't follow design order. Now, one of the things I'll say is that we got an election, and issues are coming up on the election. And I'm not here to make a political statement. Absolutely not, because I'm not that person. But what I will say is there are issues that follow these very kinds of concerns and principles in the Bible. And what Pastor Bob said, I think it was two or three weeks ago, about that we need to pay attention to what the principles are and not our self-interest. That we need to have the love of God, which is outwards towards people and towards community. Because when we have an inward focus, it affects people and communities. That our sin affects our children and our children's children to their children's children. That there is an impact of that. Not uh, that they're paying the price for my sin, but in a sense they are. Every time I sin, I'm doing something against God's design, against God's order. And that has very significant consequence in all of history. If you think you're insignificant, you're not. This is, a, this is the pool we're all in. <coughs> we need to be different. So that's what I believe when we look at chapter 12 of Samuel, 
we're looking about looking at. But also in the midst of that, we're also seeing the solution. So he, God wants us to understand the problem, but he also wants us to understand the solution. And the solution is a broken and contrite heart, one that is repentant. And that with repentance comes forgiveness and new life. And you see both of those in chapter 12. Is there a way to hold on to a broken and contrite heart apart from being in a state of symptoms of Good question. Of course, they're all good questions. Uh, I was told in Toastmasters, you never say good question. Uh, because it is, a, it is a good question. Uh, so, um, is there a way to have, continue to hold on to a broken and contrite heart apart from being in sin? Is that an accurate statement? I would say yes. And the way that that occurs is through worship. So think about what worship is. Worship is actually a word that describes a posture. So the posture is that you are on your face before God, recognizing who He is and who you are. And the uh, moral content of your actions is not involved. Rather, the condition of your heart before God is involved. So it's broken. It's contrite. Um, so, if we wanted to remain in a place where we had the right attitude towards God, of uh, broken, contrite, submitted, we would do that through continual worship. Which is why I think the Psalms are so powerful, because that's what they are. Right? They're the response back to the revelation of God about who He is, what He's doing and who I am, and what he's doing in me. And my heart sings back to him. So I actually thought this morning that I would, uh, because, you know, I, I ponder all these things. I'm coming in, I'm one of those guys that kind of ponders things. And so I'm thinking, what psalm? Right? And Psalm 139 came up because it talks about who God is, and who I am, and, and how wonderful that is. And then I thought, well, maybe, you know, we start off with uh, a position before God in Psalm 1, talking about the position of uh, the righteous versus the unrighteous. And I thought, well, Psalms in itself has a bookend. So if you look at the Psalms, they're bookended by Psalm 1, right? which, which is a, the place that you start. So let me go to Psalm 1 real quick. It says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So it's talking about blessing as a result of um, that heart condition. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. So it's describing that position that you're that broken contrite heart before God and how it actually looks and plays out in the world. You get to the very end of the psalm. Let's look at the other bookend. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's 
how I believe that we, on a daily basis, moment by moment, have that broken and contrite heart before God is to worship. And that the result of that is that we give no place to sin. And that's what Jesus said. Don't give any place to sin. Right? And we could, if you search on that phrase and find where that is in the New Testament, and look at the context, you'll see that that's what it's talking about. It's talking about how you secure your heart. How you keep from knowing, if you know that the consequence of your actions, your sinful actions and choices, have a very significant consequence, which is what we see in chapter 13, 14, through chapter 20 of, uh, of 2 Samuel, we're going to read about what happens as a result of one failure of David. How it affects Absalom and Amnon and others. How um, it's just like this explosive uh, cauldron of mal malefactor. I mean, it just boom, wipes out. David ends up on the run as a result of this. Right? Very significant what's happening. And David learned from that. We want to understand what he learned. We're getting really close on time. We really burnt you up this day. Well, you know, I know it's taken me a long time to kind of push into 13 and 14, but one of the things that happens is as you're reading through the accounts of Samuel, you get caught up in the stories, and uh, it's like you get to 13 and 14, it's like, oh, here we go again. Here's the soap opera of Scripture, and you just kind of quickly come through it. What we don't tend to stop and ponder is this is about God, right? He's trying to tell us something about who he is and what he's doing and who we are and what we're doing, and what the consequence of both choices are. The choice to choose the kingdom of God, or the choice to choose the world. And that um, when I preach through this, you got to quickly tell the story, and, and you focus on the woman from Tekoa there in chapter 14, because that's kind of the central uh, telling point in the story. Um, that what happens is, is that people tend to pull that out and not see it as part of the larger narrative. And the reason I'm spending so much time getting through this is because it's part of the larger narrative, even though it's a large chunk. It's part of the larger story of the Bible about God's love, about God's forgiveness, about the consequence of sin. And these are foundational pieces. And they come from the Old Testament. And you see them in the New Testament, maybe described describe propositionally, but it's the same story. Um, we need to take a look at what happens in Absalom's heart because it says that Absalom hated Amnon. And that's why I thought it was great that we started with this idea of love and hate. What does it mean that Absalom hated Amnon? It means that he had that man's welfare so far away from him um, that he would murder him. Right? So we need to understand these things because this is what happens in us. This is what happens in our culture. So I know I've, I've uh, kind of belabored the point, but next week I'd like to read through a very large portion of Scripture. And I'd like you to read through it in advance so that you um, kind of capture some of those questions like, why did David's son have to die? Right? I mean, those are questions I was surprised nobody asked me, maybe because I talked to them. <laughs> what do you want us to read through? I want you to read all the way through Second Samuel chapter 20. Large chunk, 
And we'll probably only read 13, 14 next week, but then I'll tell you about what's in 15 through 20. And then we'll cover that the next week and pull out the salient points. Um, we're going to cover large chunks now, and we're going to be done with Second Samuel very quickly. And you're going to be surprised. It's like, wow, how we get through that? Well, it's because a lot of foundation's been set. So we're now going to quickly complete the building. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, uh, we thank you so much for what you're teaching us. And even though it seems like in many cases it's belabored and we continue to repeat the same themes, it's because we, we don't get it. And, uh, and Lord, I just thank you for your patience and your kindness and your goodness that leads us into passive righteousness for your name's sake. And Lord, uh, we'd ask that you would continue to challenge us this week, um, that you would help us all to participate in the the world around us in the sense of uh, being a representative for you, not to give our hearts to this world, rather give our hearts to you, but to be present in the world as your voice, and that you've given us all an awesome responsibility. And Lord, I ask that you would give us the strength and, and the power to complete that which you've called us to do. Lord, I, I lift to you this morning that you would be with us as we leave here, that you would protect us, that you would provide for us. Lord, we thank you for your service for us. We ask that you be with Bob in the service this morning, that you would guide every word that he, that he speaks, that your spirit would be so powerful through him that we would uh, sing in our heart or be challenged in our heart, convicted as your spirit speaks to us. Lord, we just thank you for that and, and pray for that. Lord, we lift all things to you and give you the glory. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.